Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Sydney, Australia, in the studios of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, ABC, taking your calls at 888-887-3837, that's 888-88-PETER, and if you can't get through on the phones, you know exactly what to do. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Peter S. Greenberg or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Peter Greenberg. In the interest of full disclosure, I should tell you that I've been coming to Australia happily and thankfully since 1975 when I was a correspondent back then for Newsweek magazine. And uh, I found it magical and amazing then. It's even more magical and amazing now. Uh, And in all those years I've been coming and in all the changes I've seen, I can tell you I've only scratched the surface of what I think I know about this amazing island nation, Uh, but it keeps bringing me back. Whether it's to the main cities of Sydney or Adelaide or uh, Brisbane or all the way out west to Perth or all the way south to Hobart and Tasmania, 
uh, it keeps bringing me back because there's just so much amazing stuff to do here. Uh, and a population that basically equals, you know, a little bit more than Manhattan. I mean, think about that. Uh, and look at the landmass that you're talking about. And we're not just talking about flying over the, over the country. I take trains like the Indian Pacific or the Gone, which goes north and south. Amazing routes. Uh, on this particular trip, I've already been kayaking in the Brisbane River. I climbed the Story Bridge in Brisbane. And before that, of course, here in Sydney, I climbed the legendary Sydney Harbor Bridge, which anybody can do. Talk about, talk about a photo op. Unreal. If you want great, great experiences, that is one to do. Uh, but there's so much more to talk about, um, and uh, we will be doing that throughout the show. Uh, but one thing I do want to get to, and it bears talking about, is my experience of getting to Australia. Um, the good news is I flew here on an airline called Virgin Australia. They did a great job on a 777. The crew couldn't have been nicer. But that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the airport experience I had at LAX and our pals at the TSA. You've all heard the stories and the warnings about what, what to watch out for this summer with long lines and delays at security checkpoints because the TSA is understaffed. Depending on who you believe, it's either by 1,100, up to 2,000 agents are not on the job. They're under that number. Uh, and everybody's telling you to get to the airport early. Some of the airlines are actually saying, you better get to the airport early because if you miss your flight, it's not our fault and we're not going to put you on another plane. And the airlines, I understand why they're saying that. The other problem, of course, is a sheer numbers game. All the planes are full this summer, so if you miss your flight, getting on another flight may be difficult, if not impossible. But we've got some serious problems this summer at the TSA, and it's not going away. And not only that, we're talking about the summer. You know what? Summer's just starting. It's already happened, and it's going to get worse. Let me tell you what happened to me. My flight left, or I should say my flight was scheduled to leave, at 11.50 p.m. On a, um, on a Wednesday night to come to Brisbane, a nonstop flight. Now, airline schedules are not news bulletins. They're published way in advance. Everybody can see them online or just by calling the airline, and everybody knows when the peak periods are. If you're talking about domestic travel in the U.S., the peak periods on every flight, on every day, are between the hours of seven, and every airport, by the way, or between the hours of 7 and 9 a.m. in the morning, or between the hours of 4 and 6 in the afternoon. If you're flying overseas from either the West Coast or the East Coast, the peak periods are in the afternoon and the evening. Whether you're leaving from New York, going to Europe, or you're leaving from Los Angeles, going to Asia or the South Pacific. So you, you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to get out there two hours ahead of time, and that's what I did. I got out to LAX at 9.30 at night for an 11.50 p.m. flight. And this is what I saw. Chaos. Long lines. Uh, I got in one line because that was the line I, was, I thought I was supposed to get in. And the line didn't move. It finally moved up an escalator. But that didn't get you to TSA. That just got you to a longer line waiting for the TSA. And it wasn't moving. And after 20 minutes, I gave up and was told to go to a quote-unquote expedited line. So I went to that line. I was in that line. For 34 minutes, they already started calling my flight because we're nearing an hour now. And by the time I got to the head of that line to be able to put my carry-on bags, my two carry-on bags on the conveyor belt, there was a problem, another problem. One of my bags got flagged for secondary inspection. Here's the other problem. 
there were not enough TSA agents to do the inspection. So that bag sat there for 12 minutes, during which time I went and sought out two separate TSA supervisors to ask them what was going on and could not get a satisfactory answer. They finally found one TSA agent to inspect my bag. He took it over to their machine, which was, drum roll please, broken. They then had to take it. Now they're calling final boarding for my flight. He takes it over to another machine, empties out all the contents, runs it through security. Of course, I had to wait for that bag to run. Then I had to repack everything. So I'm now talking an hour and 10 minutes to get to my plane. I'm now racing to my flight. Now they're calling final, final boarding. I get there, and I see the gate agents who tell me, it's okay, slow down, we're not leaving yet. And why aren't they leaving yet? Because there were so many passengers for that flight and many other flights that night who couldn't get through security. So we took a 20-minute delay waiting for them. And after 20 minutes, when some of them still hadn't shown up, we decided we're going to leave. Ah, but we couldn't because a number of them had checked in for the flight Their bags are on the plane, and their bags now, for security reasons, since they hadn't shown up for the flight itself, had to be offloaded. And virtually every other international departure that night had to take a similar delay. And when I reported on this on my website, petergreenberg.com, the TSA was very quick to respond to say that my information was incorrect, my reporting was wrong, because they timed me. They went back and looked at the video and said that I only spent 34 minutes online. Yeah, the second line. They didn't time how long I spent to get my bag inspected or then repacked. And this is nuts. And it's got to change. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. You know, if you do any homework about history, and NSW, others known as New South Wales, um, what do you find? Well, of course, people tell you the legend of of Sydney and Australia being a penal colony, which it was, about how, you know, the first fleet arrived back in, what, 1788, which it did. And then as you walk around Sydney, you still see all the remnants of that. You still see, you know, how they built everything out of the stone. You still see the fortresses. You still see the... The, uh, the, the, the seawalls and everything that was done out of that. Well, joining me now has seen it all because he's not just a Sydney historian and author. He's the professor of public history at the University of Technology of Sydney. I got it right, UTS. Paul Ashton, how are you, sir? Very well, thanks, Peter. I mean, you call it, in one of your books, you call Sydney the accidental city. Yes, uh, and it was very accidental. Um, over the two and a bit centuries that Sydney has has been, and it's a very that's a young city. Yes, absolutely. It's over the time that it's been evolving, uh, there has been a huge number of contradictions and tensions in terms of the way in which the city's grown. There's been in the 19th century almost no plans about how Sydney was going to grow. It just grew topsy turvy. In the 20th century, at the end of the 20th century, and now in the 21st century. There's too many plans and too many conflicting... Well, you know, you take a look at the way Washington, D.C. was developed by the French, by the way, by Lafayette. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they mapped it out pretty well, right? Absolutely. There was no plan here. No, absolutely. And, I mean, Washington, um, D.C., uh, developed uh, just after town planning started in the late 19th century. We started, as you said, a century before when there was no planning. One of the early um, town planners said that Sydney developed based on goat tracks, 
That was it. Where grades went. There were the tracks. <laughs> and it was also Aboriginal tracks. A lot of the main pathways around, uh, like Oxford Street now and Old Southhead Road, were actually Aboriginal walking tracks. So a lot of modern Sydney is defined by where Aboriginal people walked. Right. And you can still take those tours today. Yes, absolutely. What's interesting to me about the architecture of this, of this city is there is none. I mean, when I, uh, you, you know where I'm going. I mean, there's some of the 19th century stuff uh, with the metal roofs and, and the balconies. And then there are these hideous 1960s skyscrapers. Now, you finally come to the point now where the skyline is looking pretty good. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's looking really good now. Yes, right? very, very much. The uh, skyscrapers, Sydney was very late getting skyscrapers. We had a building act called the Height of uh, Buildings, uh, which uh, cut uh, the height down to 150 feet. Now, that wasn't lifted until 1957. So 150 we, feet is 15 stories. Yep. That's it. Yep. So, And it wasn't until 1957 that act was amended. And so in 1962, we get our first skyscraper down at Circular Quay and then the uh, terrible explosion of gra glass and right. concrete uh, which has left us with that 60s stuff. Although, then comes 1974, and I'm, I'm dating myself now because I was here when it was completed, of course, the Opera House. House. Absolutely, absolutely. Hard to believe that's 42 years ago. Yes, yes, long time. And it was another um, uh, interesting project that uh, took twice as long as it was supposed to take to build and cost three times is, uh, wait, more. Wait, is there any construction project that ever is completed on time in the history of mankind ever, other than the Olympics in China, where how many people were killed during that? Absolutely. You know, because the Chinese had an unlimited budget. They didn't care. Absolutely. You know. Or on time, which yeah. is good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but... When you talk about iconic landmarks, there's the Opera House. It, it's, it's defined Sydney. Absolutely. And in fact, that beautiful Sydney um, Cove where you've got the Opera House on one hand right. and right next door, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the two icons of Australia. Right. And you place yourself right down there by the Park Hyatt and you just watch all the boats leave the harbour, all the ferry boats, and they go under the bridge or they don't go under the bridge and there's the Opera House right across. A absolutely. Absolutely. The Circular Quay is very interesting because it reflects... Over time, if you look at photographs and maps, the development of the city. When it started, it was a called semicircular key because it was only a semicircle. Uh, it developed out. Yep. And then? Um, and then you get the first skyscraper down there. Um, before, there were bond stores and warehouses, so it reflected a quarantined uh, 19th century culture and society. And so the, the beginning of skyscrapers really showed the development of modern Australia. Toto, I've a feeling we're not in Kansas Speaking with Paul Ashton, the author of The Accidental City. Okay, so so much of it was not planned. We got that part. Uh, but how much of it is being preserved? Um, <clears throat> pardon me, a very large proportion, actually. Compared to cities like um, New York or Singapore, uh, Sydney has a very large stock of heritage buildings. We've been very lucky in many ways. Uh, it's been partially accidental. Um, and so a lot of the beauty of Sydney um, has actually evolved accidentally. If you look at something like Centennial Park, which is one of the biggest urban parks in the world and very similar to Central Park, 
in New York, it was a complete accident. It was set aside as a water supply for the city, one of a number of water supplies in about 1815, and it remained a water supply, a very poisonous one too. Uh, someone in the 1850s said it was like the, the uh, broth in the witch's cauldron in Macbeth to, to drink it. But How enticing. And, uh, but it survived the urban boom in the 1870s and 80s because it was set aside as a water reserve uh, and it was turned into a park for the centenary of the, uh, of the colony. And it's called what? Centennial, Centennial Park? Centennial Park. And it's there, again, largely by accident. Okay, here's my question. The railway station. Yes. I mean, it's a very interesting building, isn't it? Central Railway, yes. Yeah. Lovely. Uh, Construction on that started in about 1907, and it actually, the, the, the placement of the railway there actually reshaped the whole dynamic of the Central Business District. Uh, because as the underground railway took off from Central down through underground through the city, it moved all the department stores from around here where we are in, in Ultimo down further into town. So it changed the whole dynamic of the, uh, of the city. And that station today, I believe it's still being used. Yes, it's, it's the, the most um, highly used station in Australia huge. It has country rail, um, suburban lines, and anything that comes into Sydney comes in through Central. Including the Indian Pacific? Absolutely. All right, now we're talking. Yep. That's my favorite train. <laughs> I mean, imagine a train that's the longest piece of straight railroad track in the world. It never makes a turn. Absolutely. And you're out there for two and a half days. Absolutely. Yep. And, and But if you're smart, you stop in crazy places like Kalgoorlie. Yes. yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Talk about Marshall Dillon and Miss Kitty. This is Gunsmoke Part 2. <laughs> Right? It's cr- very much. Yeah. I remember when I first went there, I actually thought it was so wild. I, I, got a, I went out and bought a subscription to the Kalgoorlie Miner, the newspaper. And I was getting it in L.A. every week. Fantastic. Just to find out, like, who died with a pickaxe, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable. Yeah, but it that, really hasn't changed. No, no, no. The paper probably has neither. It started in the 1890s, I think, with the gold rushes there. What's the biggest surprise to you about Sydney that's been able to be preserved? Um... Probably a lot of the housing stock in, in suburbs like Paddington, and you talked about in, in an earlier segment going into, into places where people live, there are some beautiful inner-city inner suburbs like Paddington uh, that have been preserved again by accident. The City Council in 1952 voted to demolish all of Paddington. They actually had plans to wipe it all out and build three-storey 1950s um, apartment buildings. Ugly blocks. Absolutely. And there was a financial problem uh, with the council. They had a, a bu- budget run out, and Paddington is there now today. Um, so there's a lot of lovely uh, late mid-late 19th century spots in Sydney which you could almost imagine you're not in the city, uh, that you're just in a, a lovely part of a Mediterranean city. Well, I discovered a place yesterday that most people don't know about in Sydney, Parsley Point. Ah, yes. Yes, I know Parsley Point. Not very well. No, but it's a secret little... If, if you drive too fast, you're going to miss it. And it's on the other side of, of Rose Bay. Mm-hmm. And then there's this cool little bridge there. Oh, my... Built over 100 years ago to transport ammunition when Sydney was trying to figure out, you know, how not to be attacked by the Germans. And they left the bridge. And it's the coolest little yeah. beach nobody knows about. Absolutely. You have little things like um, Bear Island down near La Perouse where um, the third... Uh, uh, that film with uh, Tom Cruise in it. What's that one? 
I can't remember. Anyway, there's a, he was shooting down there. It was set up in the 1870s to keep the Russians away. We were terrified of them. It's a wonderful little in, a fort emplacement that you can drive out onto or walk out onto. There's a lot of spots. There's another place called Bob and Head, if you ever get a chance to go. You drive through a national park to get it. It's in the middle of the, in this, the metropolitan area. And by the way, do you know how I found Parsley Point yesterday? Through a company called Detour. Ah, you drive around in a completely restored 1964 Holden. Fantastic. Right? So it's a 52-year-old car, and he takes you to these places. It's just unbelievable. Wow. And nothing in the guidebook, nothing in the brochure. That's the beauty of seeing a city from somebody who knows it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. All right. But the biggest surprise for you about someplace that's actually been preserved? Um, oh, it's, that's very hard. Um, Probably the rocks, I think, in Sydney, and yeah. that was saved by the Builders' Labourers' Federation. And, and and all those warehouses are still there. Absolutely. Uh, yep. and a lot of them turned into restaurants, but they're still there. Yeah. A great place to walk, by the way. Absolutely. There you go. Keep that going. This is Flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You got to pay with plastic. If you have a Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. The third season of Peter Greenberg's public television series, The Travel Detective, premieres this month. And as in every season, the program was shot all over the world, giving you critical, essential information about everything from understanding frequent flyer miles to how the best tour operators train their guides. While we gear up for Season 3, we invite you to go to www.trafalgarcontest.com and enter to win the grand prize of a Trafalgar Europe vacation. Or you can always visit our website, petergreenberg.com, for more information. Now, my next guest has got an amazing story, and, uh, and it cracks me up, too. Uh, he's already laughing. He played for the uh, Arizona Cardinals. Actually, the St. Louis Cardinals. What am I talking about? He played for the Houston Oilers. Who else, who else did I miss? Yeah, does anyone remember that, Pete? Uh, yeah, they do. And who else did you play for? Uh, University of Hawaii, proudly. All University right. And now he's back in Australia. Uh, Colin Scotts, welcome to the show. Yeah, pleasure, Pete. Now, now, you were a defensive end? I was, mate, yes. And you played for the Rainbows in Hawaii? Rainbow Warriors, we like to say, Pete. Rainbows didn't scare anybody, so we go with Warriors, yeah. And, well, wait a minute. Well, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, the Warriors didn't scare too many people either. <laughs> did you ever have a winning season? Uh, we did, actually. Back in Dick Tomey days, he went on to coach Arizona. And uh, look, I'm proudly, my defense was ranked second in the nation in my senior year. Never wow. been there. Yeah, no, very proud, mate, very proud. And that got you drafted in the NFL? Third round and proud of it. And first Australian ever achieve it but, mm. but then you came back yeah look 20 years man I look I had the greatest time in America and uh look the greatest time of my life uh stayed on was involved with the NFL alumni got into oil and gas but uh had a wonderful 20 years over there wouldn't change a thing I just love Americans and you know it's great to be home but yeah fond memories of the states now you played for both the St. Louis and the Arizona Cardinals correct Wow. Yeah. St. Wow. Louis didn't, wasn't too happy about us moving. But, and then now, now they've, they've just lost the Rams, the poor city. I love St. Louis, but, yeah, they, for some reason, they just can't 
aren't big enough. Well, hello. How about Los Angeles? We haven't had a team there for mm, years. You're right. You know, I don't really understand it, but you know, Oakland, LA, Oakland, LA. I don't, I don't know, but uh, yeah, good luck. Well, uh, Oakland, LA. We know what that's all about. Yeah. <laughs> but he's, but but Mr. Davis Melbourne, is gone. Sydney. But Melbourne. he's gone now. Yes, that's right. We'll yeah. see what happens with that. What was it like playing American football? Very much because you didn't grow up playing American football. No, I was born born and bred to be a Wallaby. Um, now you got to explain something. There's Aussie rules. Yes. Explain that. Yeah, look, it's a lot more punting, which is interesting. Pete, you punt to each other and you catch the ball and you kick the ball through the goals. What's interesting? We have four football codes in Australia with only 23 million people. You have one football code and 340 million. It's it's a, we have very diverse, but it's amazing the amount of athletes that we produce in different codes at such a high level. But the Austra- but the Aussie rules. I mean, it, I I went up to a couple of games. I'm like. Wait a minute. What just happened here? Yeah, I'm saying the same thing. It's a very, it's a very Australian sport. Only played in Australia, um, and very passionate in Melbourne, where they get eighty to hundred thousand just for a local. That's game. where I went to the game. I went to Melbourne. Wow, it un- it's amazing, un- mate. They go nuts. The number one sports place in the world. They they call it, and eighty to hundred thousand turn up to just just for a local game for a derby game. It's it look. It's a magic game to watch. It's fast paced, but look, I'm a but rugby. The ball guy. is different too. Absolutely. I mean, I went and got one of those balls. I I, I inflated it. I brought it back to New York. I couldn't throw that ball. It saved my life. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't throw it. And here's an interesting fact. An Americans just come down now and is playing for Geelong in Melbourne. And, uh, so he's doing what you did in reverse. Yeah, exactly, which is fantastic. So more Americans now are coming down to Australia. Uh, that was there. just announced this week. Yeah. Right? Yeah, he, it's he, fascinating. He was playing for the 49ers. Yeah, yeah. Right? So why not bring the Americans down here and, and, and play? Uh, there's no reason they can't. How is your cultural immersion in America? Yeah, unbelievable. Um, look, I uh, just, just coming into America where it was very competitive. I never. I was the biggest guy I'd ever seen, and suddenly six foot eight, you know, hundred and you know, three hundred pound guys running around. Just the whole culture was, you know, but it was it was the eighties when I came over, Peter, and it was a wonderful time for Australia to come over with the Crocodile Dundee and and the America's Cup. Okay, I have to remind you. Okay, wait, hold it. How many times did somebody come up to you and ask you to throw another shrimp on the Barbie? The <laughs> truth. Well, uh, yes, it's true, and and the boomerang too, Pete. I wrestled in the WWF. Vince McMahon gave me a boomerang. True story. And, and, you, and, you actually wrestled in the yeah, WWF? Yeah, two years. Madison this Square Garden. This is after football? Correct. Two years. Madison Square Garden. Vince, Vince McMahon, true story. He said, go out there and, and show them what you can do. Gave me a boomerang because I'd never thrown one. Threw it into the crowd and went straight. Someone yelled out, you could have knocked out someone's teeth. I said, no one's got teeth in it anyway, Pete. <laughs> So basically, it's one thing to survive American football, but you survived the WWF. Yeah, it was amazing two years. Vince McMahon, yeah, it was, I could write a book just on wrestling. Amazing experience. And uh, being Australian, I was called the Thunder from Down Under, my finishing move. Well, now they have an entire review of that in Las Vegas. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. All those Chippendale dancers. (laughs) That's right. Well, I kept my clothes on, basically. I had Speedos. and My my finishing move was the Crocodile Death Spin. It was fun, mate. It was. was Well, what was that? The Crocodile Death Spin. It came out. Uh, that the was crocodile my... death spin. <laughs> Anything goes in wrestling, Pete. Yeah, it was a magic, magic time to be creative. And, you know, after all the NFL intensity, even though, don't get me wrong, you have to be a very much a professional stuntman in wrestling. It's a very professional sport and, and it's all live and you can't afford to make mistakes. And I had more injuries in wrestling than I did in, you can't fake gravity, Peter. Well, we've, yeah, we figured that one out. <laughs> but were you, were you ever injured in football? You had to be. Yes. Yeah. Separated shoulder, snapped Achilles. Um, usual fingers now that I'm getting arthritis. It's terrible. I'm 53 now, and the average age of death of an NFL player is 53 now, Peter. It's a big deal, this whole concussion. Is thing. that true? Yeah. It is 53? Yeah, mate. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. Wow. And I'm, I've lost a lot of my teammates already. It's just a big deal. And you've probably heard about the movie concussion, but yes. a lot of mental illness. We, we suffer a lot for the few years that we get the glory.
So are you promising me that nowhere during this broadcast are you going to practice the crocodile death spin on me? <laughs> Maybe with the girls later. I don't know, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but what was the most difficult adjustment for you to play American football? I think definitely, number one, when you get there and you've got a, uh, information of, of, of moves, a 500-page booklet you're given, so much information overload, so much How many different plays did you have to memorize? Like hundreds, hundreds, hundreds. And in rugby, there was none. So I came from a culture where it was just go out and play, and there was just information overload. It was the intense training. Well, it was, rugby, it's like get ball, run with ball, fall on face. Yeah, and smash him. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, without the pads. But, the, but then everyone thought, oh, you put on the pads, you're getting soft, Pete. But it's very much a weapon now. Once I started putting this armor on, it became a car crash. The whole collision. Well, that goes back to concussion. Exactly. And did then, you ever have a concussion? Yes, I did. Yeah. Did you know it at the time? Um, but in those days, Pete, they put smelling salts under your door. Your, and you went right back out. Absolutely. And we didn't know any better, but jeepers, they do now because it's now proven to be brain damage. It's not concussion, Pete. But yeah, it was a, it was a big adjustment coming into America, but I was loving it, mate. I was, well, I was you, saw Amer- you saw America because you visited a new city every week. Absolutely. I ran around my butt pad, around my groin for three months, Peter. When I first went over there, I didn't know where to put the pads on. There was one pad left, and I'm going to, I'm going to protect my family jewels or my butt, so I put it on my <laughs> family jewels, ran around for three months. The whole Hawaiian, Hawaiian Islands were in on it, and finally coach says, mate, you've got to put it around your butt, Scotty. You're, you're the laughing stock of the islands. But my dad always taught me this, that if you can laugh at yourself, no one can laugh at you, Peter. <laughs> oh, no, they can always laugh with you. Yeah. <laughs> they can always laugh with you. Amen. So when you visited America and you were visiting all these cities every week in the season, is there a favorite city? Uh, mate, I've got two of them, Austin and Boston. Why? Mm, I just laid back cultures, small, friendly people, um, beautiful people, sport people, um, just fell in love with the, just the smaller community, country sort of, I don't know, the big cities. But mate, you didn't really play in Austin. No, but I lived in Houston for five years after When you I played with the Oilers. <laughs> before they Jerry became, Glanville. Before they became, oh, Jerry Glanville, the original cowboy. He still thinks Elvis is alive. <laughs> but that's before they became the Texans. Yes, that's right. And you were playing. And you were playing at the Astrodome. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, still got the injuries from there, mate. But uh, yeah. But you would go up to Austin because it was small and manageable yeah, 100%. and fun. Hundred percent. And just beautiful hills and water and the people and the college. Just the whole the the, the music. The, the the the. It's just a magic city for me, Austin. I just loved it. And now the Rainbow Warriors are actually coming where. Yeah, coming down to Sydney. We're all pumped. Uh, August 27th. Uh, it's going to be the first Division One college game played this year. Um, here at a real game, game. Yeah, not an real, exhibition. No, no preseason, no showcase. This is a real deal. Um, I think they're going to have 30 million Americans, so make sure you tune in. Um, it's going to be a, yeah, a big event for us. It looks like we're going to sell out the stadium. 80,000 people coming down here. Cal Berkeley, Golden Bears are playing University of Hawaii, August 27th, 12 o'clock. Okay, I, I hate to tell you this. You know who's going to win the game. <laughs> come on. <laughs> I'm, no, but I'm going to be speaking to Hawaii before they play, so expect them to come out with a bit of fire, <laughs> right? Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go We've been speaking with Colin Scott, the former defensive, and for the the Rainbow Warriors, the often not victorious Rainbow Warriors in Hawaii, the St. Louis Cardinals, who then became the Arizona Cardinals, and the Houston Oilers. Uh, Colin, you had Major League Baseball coming down here? 
right? Last year, very successful, mate. Very really? successful, yeah. Dodgers playing the Diamondbacks and sold more merchandise to a game than they ever have in an American game. So it was massive sold out. So that was a great – that set the tone for the uh, for the college game to come this year. Right. And the NFL? Yeah, look, we were hoping that if this is, if this is successful, which it looks like it's all, all – all, everything's going on, on par, that it will be extremely successful and sold out and massive TV audience that if we do a good job, that we've got a great chance, possibly with the LA Rams – or the 49ers next year because part of the LA, LA Rams deal was that they had to play a game overseas as part of their deal sure. with LA. So. Well, they've been playing it now at Wembley for a long time now. Exactly, with great success, selling it out. There's no reason the NFL can't down. No, not a preseason either, Peter. We need to bring down a real game. And I, I think now with the with the wave of NFL euphoria, if you will, in, in Australia right now, it's really caught the attention of all the Australians now. It's just a great time to bring a game down. Although it's one thing to take an NFL team on an eight-hour flight to London it's another thing to take them on a 16-hour flight down under. And I couldn't agree more. But if we, as long as we do it West Coast and they come back and have a buy, you know, there are ways that we can do it and manage it. If it's West Coast, not as bad. They come back and make sure that we have a buy the following week. You know, you mentioned a buy. I mean, the, the reality is when you finish the game, you guys were truly wasted. I mean, you were beaten up. Still, still sore. And you still got to show up for practice on Tuesday. It's like, oh, my God. Yeah, no, it is, mate. It, it, was, it was incredible, the amount, you know. The, the, the amount of injuries and soreness, and but thank goodness, you know, what we were doing recovery-wise was, was so specialised and swimming and the way you got treated and the way you got... Recovery is a big deal in the States. You guys have got it down to an art, but you need it after, you know, the intensity of playing an NFL game and even a college game. All right, so here you are, born and raised in Australia, go to play in Hawaii, get drafted in the NFL, then come back home to... Well, after the world wrestling thing, <laughs> then, you, then you come back to Australia... I would assume that all your American sports friends needed to then come and visit you. I had them. I got. I was so funny. I I, uh, I brought a couple of cowboys down quickly. Peter it was so funny. Bought them. I, I owned a pub back there, and I brought all these cowboys down, and no one knew who they were. They just wanted to. Well, you owned a pub where? I owned a pub at Darlinghurst in Sydney. I know Darlinghurst. Oh, not, well, not, not far outside of Sydney. East Village Hotel, Peter. Very proud of it. Had it for eight so, years. So you had a pub, and and when you say cowboys, Dallas cowboys. Yeah, the Dallas cowboys. So all the cowboys came in. I had five of them: Mark Stepnoski, Darrell the Moose, Johnston, all of them. Mark Two and if you remember them. Sure. Legends, yeah. Brought them down to Australia. We were having a blast, but no one knew who they were and it was sort of really bothering them. So I brought them into the... I brought them <laughs> you into know what the, that reminds you of? In the old Jack Benny show, his guest that week was Bob Hope. And they both realized they had a week off of vacation. So they went to their travel agent and they said, look, we're very big stars in America. Everybody knows who we are. Tell us, send us somewhere on vacation where nobody knows us. We just want to be left alone. So the travel agent took up their word, sent them to someplace where nobody knew them. They lasted an hour because... Nobody knew them. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, I brought them into the pub, Pete. They're all like, you know, what no one knows who we are. And I, some old legend Australian just walked up to him I said, and said to him with true honesty in Australian, I hear you're the Cowboys from America, guys. And all the boys are like, get their shoulders like, yeah, we are, you know, and, and, and in true Aussie accent. So what bloody horse do you Cowboys ride? I said, welcome <laughs> to Australia. <laughs> But did they have uh, a good time? Welcome to Australia. Had a blast. Look, I cannot. I used to bring so many of the boys down here, and there's just a wonderful chemistry between Americans and Australians. There always will be. We are just joined at the hip, um, Pete. We're 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 a wonderful, wonderful um, partners, and and uh, you know just 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 the love of our uh, our cultures. It's 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 beautiful. And what did you feed them? <laughs> we don't have Texas steaks here, but uh, yeah, we we. Was, and don't say you threw a shrimp on the barbie. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the seafood, as you know, Peter, is the best Amazing. in the world down here. Amazing. So we absolutely just got into the lobsters and seafood and steaks. And uh, yeah, they were, uh, they were happy with that department. We have wonderful food down here. Blessed. Well, before I let you go, 
let's say I'm visiting you for the first time. I've never been to Sydney. I've never been to Australia. What's the one restaurant that you love that is not in the guidebook, not in the brochure, where you hang out? Without a doubt. What Watson's Bay Hotel. Without a doubt, just the most beautiful view of Sydney. If you ever want to come down to Sydney, you can get, catch a ferry from the city. It's about 15 minutes, which is what, one thing you need to do is catch a ferry on Sydney Harbour. takes you right to the restaurant. You're looking down the harbour, one of the most beautiful places in the world, the best seafood you'll ever have in the world. cannot recommend it more. It's, you know, when crazy. I first came down here in 1975, everybody talked about Doyle's. Everybody knows about yeah, Doyle's. Yeah. But, and, and nothing wrong with Doyle's, but yeah. Watson Bay, it ain't bad. Yeah, no, it's a magic place. I just, uh, I just love going there, and it just makes me feel relaxed. And, uh, yeah, it's sort of out of the... See, now what I like to do is I go down to Rose Bay, right yep. out very close to where we are right now, yep. get on a seaplane, yeah. go out around Palm Beach, up the Hawkesbury River to a place called Pete's I Bite. Was born in Palm Beach. Then wow. you know it, right? Wow, beautiful. Right. And there's, um, I'm you trying to think what? of the name of the restaurant there. It's. Um, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's yeah. not Umberto's, it's an Italian place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oscars. Oscars. Oh, very good. Wow. I can't it's Oscars, it. am I right? Very good. Oscars, then up to Pete's Bite, up in the up in the Hawkesbury, then come back through Cottage Point Inn. Wow. And then you fly over the opera house and the and the wow. and, and, and the bridge and you're down by sunset. You got me, Peter. That is I'll take it. I'm going I'm going this weekend, mate. That, that you have is, to go. <laughs> you have to go. The wife cooks, the dog sings. Yeah. You know, it's it's true. This is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. I remember when I first came to Sydney, that was back in 1975. And I came back many times since, but in 1981 was stuck at a place called King's Cross, back at a time where it was not such a great neighborhood, although it's certainly turned around now. And then, as you learn more and more about Sydney, you find out about all the other neighborhoods that people really, who are visitors, don't know about until they literally get out of their comfort zone and go see them. And one of the newest, if you really want to talk about it, in terms of development, is Chippendale. And joining me now, the creative director of the Chippendale Creative Precinct, I like that name, Nikki Ginsburg, how are you? Hello, nice to see you. Yeah, so, I mean, the whole idea of the creative precinct goes back only six years. Yeah, that's right. Well, I arrived um, in Chippendale in 2007. From London? No, no, no. I arrived in London in 1986. I've been here a long time. Well, you went to the university here, too. Correct. Right. But I um, bought a building in Chippendale in 2007 to set up the NG Art Gallery and Mission Restaurant Bar when Chippendale really was relatively unknown. Um, it was very European in style, quite bohemian. Um, between, nothing, between, nothing wrong with bohemian. No, it's lovely. I no. think that's what really gives it its character. Yeah. Um, and it was stuck between three universities, and I never really understood why it hadn't taken off as a destination. There was nothing there. It was a cultural desert. So I set about turning it into something extremely exciting and buzzing and culturally alive. And how many galleries are we there now? We now have 22 galleries in Chippendale. So we've wow. done very well. From are you doing gallery walks? We are doing gallery walks. We have on the first Saturday of every month the Explore Chippendale free gallery walking tour. Which Excuse is, me, is wine included? Wine is included. I knew it. I knew it. And we offer lunch in Spice Alley, um, which is one of our newest um, alleyways ad- adjacent to Kensington Street, which is a fantastic destination. You know, what's interesting to, to me, and it's not just uh, particular to Sydney, but and that is, you take a look at the revitalization and the rebirth of so many neighborhoods in the United States. It really was driven by the art scene. It was driven by the galleries. And then when they did the gallery walks and people actually got out and saw stuff, then they came back. Absolutely. I think I think the thing is, is to 
try, I think culture is really important to any city and we've really got to make a point of establishing that. So I set about doing that. And then, as you say, what comes next is the food, the alcohol, the bars, the pubs, the, the fine dining. So I think Kensington Street currently right now is really buzzing. I think we have about 16 um, different sort of eateries and bars well, in Kensington Street. Well, you know Street. where I was yesterday, where? Kensington Social. Oh, okay. Isn't that lovely? Uh, unbelievable. Fantastic, right, and right yes. next to the Old Clare. Yes, right. And that's beautiful. Just been refurbished. They've done a hotel. great job there. 65-bedroom um, hotel, five-star, swimming pool at the top, cocktails. But here's what I liked Fantastic. about that yeah. street. Yeah. You can walk it. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is not – you don't have to take a mass transportation. You don't have to get in a car. You just walk. Yes. No, it's fabulous. And did you um, find Spice Alley around the side of it? Did you I manage, did. You and did. that's where the galleries. Correct. Yeah. And they're the galleries that I run currently, the two little galleries. Well, that's very scary because I could have done a lot of damage in those galleries, <laughs> let me tell you. Well, they were all sold, so too bad. I know. <laughs> No, you missed but, out. But the good news is, I mean, you kept those buildings, too. Yeah. Well, it was um, the vision of Dr. Stanley Quek, who's the former chairman of Fraser's Property Australia, who redeveloped the old brewery site, Central Park, which you probably saw as you walked through. Absolutely. Which is a fantastic um, just renovation and visionary sort of change to the neighborhood. And then he purchased the street from Fraser's Property Australia, so set about seven years ago to establish a Kensington Street really um, taking into consideration the character, the heritage, and sort of restoring it with the love and passion that it really deserves. And then I now work with him as well as his creative director. So I have many hats, the president of the Chippendale Creative Precinct, then his creative director for Kensington Street. So it it's, has a lovely synergy because I can do everything that I want for Chippendale, uh, and it's incredibly exciting. And the thing the that's changes. interesting and people sh should know about it is if you're in downtown Sydney, if you're down by the rocks, let's say, yeah. Uh, the distance between that and Chippendale is what? Nothing. Not really. It's probably about twenty minutes um, in a in a car. Which in a, is on a pretty, bad day. Which is yeah. So on it's, a bad it's day. pretty quick. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I just want to mention because I'm so excited about it is we've just um, about to establish the historical walking tours of Sydney. Of, of Chippendale, sorry, of Chippendale. And will wine be involved? And wine, <laughs> and food and spice alley. And then, and that's, we're launching on the second Saturday of every month, and we're launching that in July. And then in September, we're launching the Food Safari Program, which will take you all around Chippendale, as will the historical walking tour and the gallery walking tour. So we're doing a lot to really sort of activate the area, to bring life to it, to bring people to it, audiences to it. Uh, to showcase, you know, all that we have, which is really rich and exciting. Well, you know, and it's not contrived, which is what I like about it. I mean, if you want to be able to walk it, it's not because somebody's forcing you to walk. It lends itself to walking. Absolutely. And there's lots of nooks and crannies to discover. It's not just focused around Kensington Street. You can move around the neighborhood. And I think that's, it reminds me a little bit of Chelsea of New York, which which is sort of five you years know, ago. It does. it does. I got yeah. that idea from, oh, let's try and let's make the Chelsea of New York in Chippendale. And I think the idea behind is is when you arrive in Chelsea, you sort of think everything's going to be on one street, but it's not. It's you not. actually have to walk around, discover it. And I think that's the beauty of it. And it gets you exercising as well, <laughs> which is also very important. To work off all the wine <laughs> you'll be all, drinking. And, and food, amazing <laughs> food you'll be eating too. <laughs> Nikki Ginsburg, the creative director of Chippendale Creative Precinct. Good luck on that because I'm telling you, it works. Thank you. And we had a great time yesterday at the Kensington Social, which was a, a, a surprising discovery because I didn't until I walked in, I didn't know it existed. Yeah. Now I do. Nikki, thanks again. Thank you very much. Thank back you. with more of Peter Greenberg Worldwide when we return to Sydney right after this. Now back to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. 43 minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you in Sydney in Australia from the studios of the ABC or the Australian Broadcasting Corporation taking your calls at 888-887-3837. That's 
888-PETER. If you can't get through on the phones, you know exactly what to do. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. It's so amazing to me uh, how much we don't know about Australia and how much we don't know about a culture of a country that as a country may only go back 200 years, but as a culture goes back way further than that. And this is especially true of Sydney, because when you think of the Aboriginal culture, people who visit Sydney think, oh, I have to go out into the outback for that. I have to go way west. Uh, The answer is no, they were here too. And in fact, they were here in abundance. And joining me now, somebody who knows a lot about that, Mary Mumbala, who's with the Bangaroo Delivery Authority. Yes. Whatever that means. Uh, that's a Barangaroo. Barangaroo, yes. Yeah. Um, it's named after an Aboriginal woman uh, who actually came from the Gamaragal clan across the harbour to the north. Right, but when you say across the harbour to the north, we're talking less than 20 miles. Yep. Right? Yep. And how much, uh, you know, there's, there's a period that you see uh, in South Africa after Mandela where you had a period of reconciliation and, and forgiveness. You're still very much a part of that right now in Australia. Very because much. Uh, if you look at the history of the treatment of the Aboriginal people uh, by the British and then by the Australians itself, uh, there was some pretty horrendous stuff. Yes, there was. And and so you're still in that process of reconciliation and bringing that history back to life so that people know the origins and they know the history and they know the reason why they're even standing where they're standing now. Yep. So what, I mean, for someone visiting Sydney for the first time, what are the, the Aboriginal secrets here that they can discover? Well, they can come on down to Barangaroo. Um, Barangaroo is a brand new reserve that's been open since uh, August, September. And um, we do some Aboriginal cultural tours on the reserve. And we're also talking immersive experiences too. Yes. See, that's the thing. It's, you know, I, I hate to say this. I, I'm embarrassed as an American because we have the same issue with the American Indian. And, and when you go to certain locations in the Southwest, the Indians are sort of like showpieces. They're, they're performing. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that is such an insult. Yeah. You don't do that. No, we don't do that at all. We give you a, a, a bit of a history on the harbour of the Gadigal and the Gamaragal and Wongal people that lived on the harbour of Sydney. And um, we'll tell you about a bit of, you know, the bush tucker that they ate and, you know, the marine life. Yeah, let's talk about what they ate. Because a couple of years ago, I was out there in the bush, way out west, right? And they said, okay, guess what? Your turn, Greenberg. You're going to eat some (laughs) Aboriginal grub. Yeah. Yeah, you're laughing. I wasn't laughing. Oh, well, it's nice. Was it a witchy grub? Yes, it was. You know what? I I remember it very well, Mm. right? Tell them what a witchetty grub is. Come on. A witchetty grub is... It's a caterpillar. It's like a caterpillar. It's a caterpillar. Yeah, a big fat one. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it was a big... <laughs> <laughs> now you're really laughing at me. And it was a little squirmy and a little bit... Right? Yep. Very and, and, and you can tell me anything you want. Like, it tastes just like chicken. I don't care. But I got through it. Yeah. But I also appreciated it at that point. Because one of the things that you learn very quickly in, in, in researching the Aboriginal culture is what they had to make do with. What they discovered from, from, from basically back directly to nature, right? What you could do with the bark of a tree. Yep. What you could do medically from a bark of a tree, yep. right? Yep. They also indicate whether, um, you know, like the wattle, this, uh, the Sydney golden wattle here in Sydney, um, also it indicates that the whales are moving north when it's in bloom. So, you know, there's all different indications that could come from our bush foods. And there's still so many things that we can learn 
from yep. Aboriginal history, which is still being practiced today. That's right. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Joining me now, the Chief Concierge from the Four Seasons Hotel here in Sydney, uh, George Souza. How are you, sir? Very good. Very good. Uh, all right. Thank so you. should I be afraid of you? Not at all. Not at all. We are the friendly society. I'm part of the Clador. Claydor. So and you've been a concierge for 30 years. I've been for 30 years. That's right. And so you've seen everything? Almost everything. Almost everything. I mean, there's such a misnomer about, about concierges that the only thing you do is get theater tickets or reconfirm airline reservations. That's about one-thirtieth of what you do. That is very true. Uh, normally, concierges are addressed as the friend away from home. Okay, so how many languages do you speak? Uh, myself, I speak four. I'm sorry, that's not good enough. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> four languages. Four languages. Wow. And so, you, I mean, look, if you're sitting in an international gateway city, as Sydney is, you better speak four languages, right? Probably Mandarin when, you, when you're done. Right, because that's, right. that's happening now with 130 million Chinese starting to travel. Yeah, you you're right. Better start learning Mandarin very quickly. What, what are the kind of requests you get? And, and I'm not talking about requests from a visiting sheikh or head of state, but something that that anybody would request, as unusual as it might be, that you were able to deliver. Most definitely. I mean, we get we get all types of questions. Uh, we're very strict that everything has to be morally and within the legalities. Well, of course. So. I mean, we get for as little as people going to the restaurants, of course, which is the usual thing. Right, restaurant reservations. Up to proposals that can, can be stopping the harbour bridge, the bridge climb completely in order for them to, to have the proposal up there. Let's hope she said yes. So far, we have 100%. <laughs> so far. But, of course, if she said no, there will be one fewer person on the bridge. Very right. Very over, right. You, know? you better say yes at that altitude. That's right. Then you can always claim later you were affected by the height. <laughs> You see, there's always an out. That's true, very uh, true. But an unusual request. I mean, for example, uh, I was told of one yesterday where a visiting uh, Arab royalty uh, understood that they were breeding, you know, white, you know, German shepherds and insisted that they find them. And they did. And they and they flew them back, you know. I mean, what are the crazy stuff you get? I mean, believe it or not, one, one of the, the most challenging one was actually for a proposal in the Harbour Bridge. That was actually the most challenging one that I got. To get a private plane or things, it's very easy for us to do. Uh, when you have a certain amount of bridge climbs that's already booked and trying to go around it in order that this particular person only want to be themselves on the harbour bridge at the a time of the proposal. this person didn't know they were about to be proposed to. They did not know they were about to be proposed okay, to. Okay, so here's my second question. I know this because I've climbed the harbour bridge. That's right. You're not allowed to take anything with you. Very right. So wait a second. Where was the ring? Uh, the, the climber that goes with them. Yeah. From the bridge climb. He had the ring. She was the one who was carrying the ring. Oh, okay. So, because otherwise you couldn't take the ring up. Very right. right. Very and, right. And you're cabled in. It's, uh, you, have you climbed the bridge? Many times. It's I'm great, loving isn't it. it. I'm loving it. By the way, they have different bridge climb times, and my suggestion is. 
go as early in the morning as they'll all let you do it so you're up there as the sun is just coming up. Sunrise is definitely the best time. Yeah. Definitely the best time. And by the way, where the, where the, where the Four Seasons is located, and I was there when they opened it in 1982, is the Regent, right? It's the Regent. That's very uh, nice. But where you're located, you look out the window from your room at the, at the Four Seasons, you've got the, you've got the Opera House on the right and the bridge on the left. It's just unreal. It doesn't get any better than that. Right. So wait, so they climbed up the bridge. They climbed up the bridge. Uh, they got up to the top. He went on his knees. How does he get on his knees? He's cabled uh, in. Oh, that's fine. You still you still can get on your knees okay. up, up at the top. And he proposed it then, and everything was videoed and recorded. And she said yes, and it was a very successful story. And they it, didn't it, drop the ring. They did not drop the ring. The ring was actually stuck into a piece of uh, string. Oh, they see, they were, they were thinking it of everything. Everything needs to be attached. Even the ring was cabled. It was attached, <laughs> and uh, they only they only took it off once it was actually on a, on a finger. Wow. All right, so that was a successful one. It was one. a very success story, that one. But if I want a private seaplane, you're the guy to go to. Anything and everything. I mean, there's no limitations what the guests they ask. Cause it's, uh, they come to us for anything and everything while they stay with us. But you have to say no to some things. If it's illegal or immoral, at times you have to say no. We're always trying to find solutions. There's always some other things around, but as long as it's, if it's illegal and immoral, yes, we don't, we don't do it. All right, so if it was an immoral proposal... <laughs> Uh, no, it wasn't. Or an indecent no, no, no. proposal for like no. for a million dollars. Remember that movie? Okay. Yeah, I do. I do yeah, remember I that movie very well. I know. I, do. I know. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. 
and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.